Okay. Looks like we have not crashed. Congratulations. That's what I'm always saying when I'm driving. <laughs> and it looks like we have not crashed. Your passengers question they're like, is that a that that's that's the usual way, right? It's not that's, that's not the that's the normal exception. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad when uh, airplane pilots don't say that. Welcome to Denver, everyone. We have not crashed. <laughs> Thank you for being a part of my first successful flight. What? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't exactly elicit confidence. I, I didn't want to tell you beforehand. I wanted to save that as a little landing surprise for everybody. Yes. A landing surprise. Not crashing. Hey, everybody. This is Solutions from the Multiverse. My name's Adam Browse. I'm Scott Moppin. And we have a guest with us. Do you want to introduce yourself, Andre? Hello, everyone. My name is Andre Stackhouse, and I'm the campaign director of Whole Washington, as well as a co-founder of Medicare for All Everywhere. Oh, my God. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast, Andre. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Now, you're bringing the solution today, Andre. Do you want to share what the solution is we're going to talk about? Sure. Um, so I suppose without lingering on the problem too much, uh, the United States has a sort of famously uh, expensive healthcare system. It is not universal. So if you compare us to most other industrialized countries, they're achieving uh, virtually universal coverage uh, while paying considerably less. So that's the uh, encapsulation of our problem. Um, now, the solution is difficult because this is something that healthcare activists have been working on for, depending on um, exactly where you think the beginning is, you know, 50 years, 60 years. Uh, most countries with universal healthcare systems uh, got them around uh, World War II, post-World War II, uh, during Reconstruction, and uh, it never happened in the United States despite many efforts. Can we go straight to the solution that you're doing, and then we'll walk back and figure out all this history? It's okay if they don't have the context. We'll fill in the context later. Sure. Oh, I'm, so, yeah, I'm going to ask about the context. Yeah, I Scott's got a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, so the solution is, um, in order to get federal, universal, single-payer health care, we start by passing it in a state. And we pass it in a state like Washington, where we can take it directly to the ballot, where there's no filibusters, there's no parliamentarians, there's no vetoes. We just put it on the ballot and pass it. So now the questions begin. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I need more. Ex I mean, as per usual, I need more explanation. So what? So what is the way it's set up now? Right now, in order to get Medicare for all passed, it's uh, it's a national only game. Well, what I would say is that, um, you know, we've had uh, people working on this issue for a long time. Um, and the sort of, uh, you know, when people think of universal health care for the United States, they usually think of Medicare for all, which is federal legislation. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, you know, Bernie Sanders bill in the Senate, and then a bill in the House uh, from Pramila Jayapal. And uh, a lot of people when they say, okay, well, how do we get this? They say, well, we need to get co-sponsors in the Senate and the House, we flip legislators, and then they pass the legislation, and we all have right. health care. Um, that so a totally federal strategy. So vote for your congressperson, and then that congressperson goes and advocates for it, or vote for your senator, but, and then that senator goes and does it in Washington. That, that does seem nigh impossible, especially in today's climate. <laughs> 
wouldn't we need like 60, 60 Bernie Sanders basically in the Senate to do it? I mean, we need 60 people who said, yeah, let's, let's do it. I mean, I think that there's a couple different ways to look at it. You know, you can look at any legislation that currently has, you know, theoretically a majority, but can't pass because they don't have that filibuster proof majority. Um, so maybe something like the $15 minimum wage is a good example. Um, we haven't been able to get that through, even though it has a lot of support. Um, and then if you look at something like Build Back Better, which was sort of the last um, push for, you know, a major infrastructure package that included some health care. Um, initially, we were talking about lowering the age of Medicare from 65 to 60. We were talking about expanding it to include things like dental, vision, hearing. Um, and that, that was at the beginning of the negotiations. By the end, almost all expansions to Medicare had been removed from Build Back Better. And mm -hmm. so what eventually passed, um, you know, was some very, very modest amount of drug price negotiation, I think, uh, not even starting for uh, years, you know, maybe like eight, 10 years. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of the state of the federal movement. What I would say is if you look at any major federal change, right, um, big changes to federal policy. In almost all cases, if you walk back from there and you look at how did they get to the point where they could pass it federally, um, it's because you had had movements that existed at state level that had organized people uh, in their home states and then um, in many cases had passed a statewide version of sort of what gets proposed federally. And um, that mm -hmm. even applies to healthcare, right? So in the United States, we currently live under the Affordable Care Act, which was the last major reform to our healthcare system. But before it was called the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare, it was called Romney Care because it came from the state of Massachusetts. So it actually passed in Massachusetts. It was the law of the land in Massachusetts. Correct. Yes. Oh, interesting. It, so you're actually, in some ways, we're following the same, you're suggesting following the same strategy as the Affordable Care Act took. Go live in Massachusetts, then go live in the federal. Were there other states besides Massachusetts that had their own kind of medical regime? You know, not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, so uh, Massachusetts was selected as one of the sort of better functioning healthcare systems. I think they had achieved 95% or higher coverage, and they were using mm -hmm. uh, an individual mandate system, which basically is where people are required by private health insurance, which then kind of lowers the cost because you have more people paying into it. It's an incredibly private model, right? So it's entirely based around private health insurance and requiring people to have that. Um, but, uh, you know, there's different ways that this kind of thing can go. So I would say Obamacare has a kind of mixed legacy. Um, and if you look at uh, Canada, um, we often talk about Saskatchewan, which was the first province to pass Medicare. Um, and that eventually was expanded into the Canadian healthcare system, which is a universal single-payer healthcare system. And so, um, you know, we basically think that uh, the provinces or the states have incredible influence over federal policy. Um, Saskatchewan is not a uh, it's not an urban province. It is not a liberal province. It is a rural and conservative province. And yet, 
that's where their healthcare revolution began. And, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act, right, there's an expression often used in activism, which is uh, two steps forward, not one step back, right? So we are sort of taking stock of where we are after the Affordable Care Act and saying, what can we do to take this further and reach universal health care? So uh, some people got coverage under the Affordable Care Act, and we want to simply go further by expanding some of these programs. So one of the mm. major programs of Obamacare was um, was Medicaid expansion, which many states, including Washington, chose to do. Um, and the most recent state to do that is South Dakota. So South Dakota expanded Medicaid. Those liberals, all those liberals in South Dakota. <laughs> right, right. They're and, just They're just radicals out there. Well, what's really interesting, right, is that in South Dakota, it is one of now seven states that expanded Medicaid, not by uh, a governor who wanted to do it or a legislature that wanted to do it, but because their voters needed health care. So they put it on the ballot and passed it. Um, and so we saw wow. a lot of really That's impressive great. victories just in the last election, including the Medicaid expansion in South Dakota, but also Measure 111 in uh, Oregon which was an amendment to their state constitution, basically affirming the right of all Oregonians to, um, to affordable health care. So when taken to the ballot, this issue actually does really well. It's been this uh, incredible slog trying to get it through legislatures, right? Whether we're mm -hmm. talking about the federal legislature or state legislatures, right. but when it's actually put on the ballot for voters, it tends to be very popular and can do really well. Forgive my, not, my lack of being familiar with it, but in a single payer healthcare situation, are private insurance companies no longer a thing? Do they do they basically go extinct? So what I would say is when we say something like single payer healthcare, it's a term that I sometimes liken to something like, say, democracy or capitalism, right? Which is mm -hmm. to say that there's sort of a theoretical sense of what it is, right? A textbook definition. And then there's the real world, which is messy and a little bit more nuanced, right? So in Canada, there is still some amount of private healthcare spending, um, but uh, not nearly to the extent of the United States, right? The vast majority of people get the vast majority of their care paid for by the Canadian government. Um, so it depends on how you implement it. The idea, and in its sort of pure textbook instantiation, is that um, all financing comes from one place which mm -hmm. usually would be the government, right? Um, that's right. why it's called single payer. Uh, but mm -hmm. in reality, um, you know, most of these systems maintain some amount of private insurance, but the most important thing that we're trying to remove is sort of the uh, uh, financial, like the need to have a certain kind of financial status to receive care, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, in the case of whole Washington, right, um, all all point of service costs are removed, right? So um, there might be different ways in which, uh, you know, you're paying into the system through taxes. Um, mm -hmm. But at the time that you receive the care, you're never given a bill, right? So you never don't have enough money in your pocket right, right. to go get health care. I always, I always wondered why it wasn't more of a state-by-state state strategy, because, you know, with gay marriage, state-by-state state strategy led to a kind of groundswell that then emerged as a federal, then it, then it kind of became a federal thing. Same thing that a lot of believe people believe marijuana is on that track. 
state by state legalization. And now we, we see a groundswell and then, you know, Biden just pardoned a bunch of uh, marijuana, you know, possession people. And also I think, or, you know, asked the justice department to deschedule marijuana, although that hasn't gone through yet. But I, I feel like there's such a, there's such an awesome sort of snowball strategy there. And with Medicare for all, something that, that Scott and I have talked about on solutions multiple times, and, and, as, and as a solution, people are probably all aware of is this idea of Medicare for all, although still with questions. It was always like this, go for, shoot for the moon, you know, shoot the lights out, you know, get Bernie Sanders as president and, and then somehow, you know, get, you know, clone him in a vat of goo and, and make 60 more of them and then have them all be elected senators. And it was this kind of like thing that that's never, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking that's never going to happen. Like what, why, you know, why are we going for this, this, this huge shoot the lights out strategy when we could do this state by state strategy? Yeah. So, I mean. I think that um, we can have multiple solutions in this episode. And so the the solution here in Washington is put it on the ballot directly, right? Mm -hmm. The solution for federal Medicare for all, I think, is this kind of through the state's strategy that you're alluding to, which is to say that we need to be running these campaigns in every state that we can, every state that has a constituency for it, which, by the way, should be every state. Everyone needs mm -hmm. health care. Uh, there are a lot of right. people in every state who are are horribly treated by our healthcare system, and that provides the basis for that movement. That's uh, sort of the work of Medicare for All everywhere is the, the um, idea of there are a lot of these movements in different states, whether we're talking CalCare, New York Health Act, uh, whole Washington, Colorado. Um, there are many states that are, are pursuing this at state level. So Medicare for All everywhere is the idea that all of these campaigns will do better if they are connected to one another, if they're collaborating, taking notes and sharing notes, uh, uh, promoting each other's stuff to build that narrative and that uh, mind share in the public. So that's sort of um, something that I think hasn't existed as much as a lot of these campaigns have been sort of in silos, and then they've also been siloed away from this federal movement. So you have yeah. this big divide between state and federal, and all of the states are on their own. Sometimes you have a further divide between legislative and initiative. And the idea of Medicare right, for right. All Everywhere is we are all basically working on the same big project, which is universal health care in the United States. So instead, we need to say, it's not about my strategy is the best strategy, or this is where you know this needs to happen first, right? It's we're all working on this. If we all work together and in the same direction, right. we will eventually get there. Yeah, and and I was asking because it does seem enormously popular, like how ACA was a thing that used to be campaigned on, and now it's kind of gone by the wayside. It's like, oh, this is a popular thing. We can't campaign on repealing the Affordable Care Act anymore. And Medicare for All is the same sort of thing. We're Medicare for All everywhere. I asked about the insurance companies because it is it does seem like it would be enormously popular with everyone except the people who are losing money by not being in the mix anymore. And so those are the people, unfortunately, who get their claws into lobbyists and that sort of thing and and can kind of gum up the works and keep something from getting all the way to a place where people can vote on it and make it a reality. Transparently, I'm totally in support. I'm a huge fan of universal healthcare. I lived in Japan for six years where uh, that was the law of the land and it was delightful and wonderful. And now that's one of my uh, one of my main things that's like I lament about the state of our country is that 
we don't see healthcare as a, a right or a thing that's important enough to provide to everyone like front and center. Yeah. And even, even uh, amidst a global pandemic, you know, the, the reporting that I saw maybe about six months ago or so, and it was uh, based on some academic research reported in Scientific American, but the estimate was that about 330,000 lives could have been saved over the course of the pandemic if we had just had a universal healthcare system. Um, you know, and we're Oof. not talking about inventing some crazy new medical technology, right? It's, it's not based on um, you know, a vaccine that works better than the current one or anything like that. It is just the delivery of care to everyone in an equitable way would have saved a lot of lives. Yeah, it's just access yeah. to what we currently have already. Yeah, I'll even share too. So I, I used to run hospital billing systems in, in various states and in, in huge health systems. So I was overseeing and seeing how billions of dollars of health uh, you know, bills were being collected and, and sent and claims sent out to insurance companies. And it was it was literally like night and day when you would bill Medicare, they would they would pay back they would pay the Medicare would pay electronically like within twenty four hours. They would just get the bill and they would just the claim and they would just be like, Yep, okay, paid and done. And the private insurance companies without fail, it would go back and forth, back and forth the whole army of people in the in the basement of the hospital would be sending out claims a whole army of people in the insurance company would be denying those claims and quibbling about how documentation wasn't done or this or that or the other thing or the timing of it or the way the name was written or they would try to find anything they could to reject it and then the army of people in the hospital would again have to kind of fix things or change things or reapply or petition and then the insurance company would wait all the way until the maximum time so if there was a 2 week maximum time by law that you had to return then they would respond one week, six days and 50, you know, 23 hours and 59 minutes later, then they'd respond. Uh, and so they were always just nickel and diming. And it created such enormous waste. Like all those people didn't have to be doing that work. And all those insurance people didn't have to be doing that work. Uh, if, if it was all just Medicare, literally the bill would go out and come back within 24 hours, the hospital would get paid, everybody get paid. And it was like a, it was like a snooze, you know, it was like so easy. Yeah. And, you know, one way that I sometimes put this right is, uh, you know, we pay about twice as much as our sort of peer countries that have universal health care. We don't even achieve universal coverage. So I just say we already pay for the care. We just we just want the health care. Um, right. And right. We're all pretty paying. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. there's a ton of work to be done in, when it comes to taking care of people. Right. And, and giving them the care. And so we'd rather have all of those people, all of that money, all of that attention going towards actual care rather than administration primarily for the purpose of denying claims. Yeah. It becomes an American, like a uniquely American thing because it doesn't exist in any of these other developed countries. It's strangely, it's a strangely American phenomenon. I have a friend from Ghana who came from Ghana and he's this awesome guy. He's really smart. He's a software engineer. He is just this great guy. And he got, he had drives a motorcycle and he like got hit or got, got into a small accident and a piece of uh, like glass or plastic or something got embedded in his forearm. 
It's kind of gr- kind of gr- a little Ooh. gruesome. But anyways, he had this piece of plastic in his forearm, and he had to get it removed because it's like a foreign body, you know. So you got to remove the plastic from your arm. So he went and got this little minor surgery to have this piece of plastic removed, and he was so completely flummoxed and turned. This is a software engineer, a very very smart software engineer. He was completely flummoxed and turned around. He got he got like three bills, like one from the doctor, one from the hospital, and one for like an adjustment or something. Each of the bills were he thought he paid them all, and then then it came back that something hadn't been paid, and then it was like just maddeningly insane. And he came to me because I was one of his friends, and and I and he knew I knew about healthcare and about how you know billing and stuff. So he came to me and was like, "What is going on in Ghana?" This would never have happened. Like in Ghana, the health system makes more sense than in America. Yeah. Like every, I, I had the reverse mentality when I was in Japan. My first experience with their healthcare system, I broke a bone in my foot at, at school while I was like, uh, while I was doing stuff with students. And like, uh, I hobbled around the next day and I hobbled into the school office and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I, messed up my foot. I think it might be broken. I don't know. It's all purple and blue. I can't really walk on it. And they're like, <laughs> go to the doctor. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't. I don't. I'm yeah. like, I can't afford. I, I can't go to a doctor. That's got to be super expensive for a broken bone, no less. And they were like, they just couldn't understand my hesitancy. They were like, you're hurt. Just go, to go to a doctor. Yeah. And then when I did, it was my first official broken bone. <laughs> and I spent the next uh, next six weeks or whatever in a cast. I help my. I also hurt my foot in a universal uh, insurance company or in universal insurance land, which was I was in Germany and I sprained the crap out of my ankle playing basketball. Like I, the loudest crack you've ever heard, just this like crunchy sound. Uh, it was kind of like you, yeah, it was just horrible. And I, it was swelled up huge. And they were the same thing. They were just like, yeah, we'll just go. And actually, we went to the emergency room because it didn't even matter. It was like, yeah, we we'll go to the emergency room. So we went there. And yeah, I, I don't know. I waited like, I don't know, an hour, which is like how shorter than you wait in an emergency room in America, even if you have insurance. And then they, they you know, they looked at my ankle and they were like, okay, it's not broken. I don't think they needed to do an x-ray because they could just assess from like palpating it that it wasn't broken. And they're like, it's not broken. It's just really, really, really sprained. Here's some crutches. Go home. No bill, nothing. Perfectly professional. I saw a doctor. Like it wasn't just like a PA or something. Like I talked to a real doctor. It was great. Meanwhile, an enormous number of Americans live day to day with the reality that a significant health emergency could financially wipe them out like permanently, which is. And you know who else? I mean, we always see it from this side and we always talk about it from this side because, you know, we think about the people and we're people, right? We're citizens. So we and we talk about it from that perspective. But I mean, I'm also an entrepreneur and know a lot of like entrepreneurs and, and business people you know who's really paying this price? It's the businesses. The businesses pay these exorbitant premiums as an employment perk, right? So you go and get a job and then you get health insurance. That's because your employer pays the premium, which means it, it is the citizens. And obviously I care about the people getting their health care, but they're, it's not just a completely sort of left-wing, like anti-business proposal to say, let's cut all these costs in half and let the taxes be done, let it be all done by the government centrally, it would actually reduce enormously the burden on business financially. It would be, in a way, one of the biggest handouts to business ever made would be to make this policy. It's never framed that way, right? 
but it actually would be a huge handout for them because they could the next day stop providing health insurance, but they wouldn't immediately raise everyone's salaries. The salaries would stay the same, right? But they could stop paying all the health premiums. It's amazing how much money they the, the businesses would actually get if they if they did the, if we so, did this. So would that be Adam? Would that be how you position it to uh, to corporate America? Is yeah, absolutely. It should be called the American Medical Stimulus Plan. That's what it should be called, or something. It should be. It, I don't know why this is never underscored. Businesses would get billion hundreds of billions of dollars that first year they would get in they could just make money <laughs> they could just make the money i definitely it's don't crazy. know enough andre does this sound like something that businesses could like are they allowed like does that is that going to motivate businesses it's, it's basically scott's asking you if browse is being <laughs> well i don't stupid. know i don't know enough <laughs> so um I, I was just going to start by saying, you know, this is one of the really great reasons, I think, to try to get something like this on the ballot, because you get to actually have these conversations with voters. And um, a lot of the times people haven't uh, necessarily, you know, everyone is experiencing our healthcare system and usually are having not great experiences, but they haven't necessarily been given the invitation to think about a different way that it could work. And so by asking them to sign you get to have that conversation. And, um, you know, when it comes to businesses, I think you're completely correct. So Whole Washington, um, we have a bin system. If you go to wholewashington.org slash sign, you can see um, bins all over the state of Washington with our petition sheets. And that's where you can go and sign. Uh, and if you want to grab a sheet, you can go and uh, ask your friends and family to sign. And then when you're done, you can take it right back to that same bin and turn it in. And, uh, a huge number of those uh, bin hosts for us are local businesses who support universal health care, uh, who struggle to provide health insurance for their employees if they even do at all. Um, and I think what's incredible about this is, uh, you know, there's different ways to fund universal health care. Uh, some people believe that you could do this at federal level without any taxes at all. Um, at state level, you pretty much have to use taxes. Um, uh, you know. It is a mix of federal and state money, but state money needs to be uh, raised through state taxes. Um, and uh, and so, you know, we have to work within Washington's tax code, which is actually um, often considered the most regressive tax code in the country. A uh, little mm. bit surprising, yes. Uh, but um, But what's interesting is, you know, the vast majority of the state funding for our plan comes from a corporate tax. Uh, of 10.5%. They can deduct up to 2% of that from employee payroll. Um, and what's crazy about this is that's providing the the bulk of the funding, like 80% or more. And um, right now, the average employer pays 12% uh, for the healthcare costs. And some are paying considerably more because you know that's the way an average works. But, um, but yeah, the fact is... Uh, the health insurance industry and sort of the healthcare lobby is very good at pushing these costs around and hiding them. And, and there are very few people that are getting a good deal from this. And businesses, generally speaking, are not one of them. Um, and so I definitely do think, and, and that's like, you know, an established business case. The other case is, of course, the entrepreneurial case, which is you want to start your own business. Um, but now you have to worry about, uh, losing your own health care while you're in a startup phase. 
And then how am I ever going to provide healthcare for employees, right? So um, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I think it's like people are going to be free to pursue an education and then start that business that they always wanted to start. Or from a labor standpoint, you know, you want to go on strike, you want better benefits. Um, having that relationship where, uh, where you know, your healthcare is completely dependent on your employer and your boss uh, makes you less powerful as a worker. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because I personally think that uh, uh, business and labor don't always have to be at odds. But I really think that this is one of those cases where it is both incredibly pro-labor and incredibly pro-business to have everyone have healthcare. Because as a business, it's not just the money. It's that you now get to focus on what you actually want to do, which is your business. Yeah. You don't instead of want... pretending like you're a, a little a little health insurance company. Exactly. You know? It's like what? Why? <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, like, oh, okay, I sell and I buy and sell the goods, whatever. But what I really like doing is all this HR paperwork. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, ooh la la. That's why I have a business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please pile that up. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like it removes a huge obstacle toward growth of a small business and being able to scale up because like like you were saying that's a huge the employer like Adam you were saying the employer pays those costs for healthcare for their employees and that's a huge chunk when you're trying to yeah. scale up that that's massive that, and it's interesting that you guys chose in Washington to have it be a corporate tax in that is that written into the ballot initiative yeah. Like the actual funding is written in there too. So you can go to wholewashington.org slash how we pay for it and kind of see how this mm -hmm. works. Um, it is a little bit complicated. Uh, but yeah, it's a corporate payroll tax. Uh, as I said, 2% of that can come from employee payroll. Um, the only other taxes, basically that same 2% goes to sole proprietors. So if you're a sole proprietor, uh, it's 2%. And then um, an 8.5% capital gains tax. Um, and all of these exempt the first $15,000, um, as well oh, as in the case of the capital gains tax, home sales, retirement accounts, and other things like that. So the capital gains tax is really intended to uh, help us create a structure in which the wealthiest people in Washington are going to be contributing kind of a fair share to this. Yeah, what makes the Washington tax code so challenging is that. Um, Basically, all taxes have to be flat taxes, and um, there is some legal disagreement on this, including with the capital gains tax that was passed just a year or two ago, the first capital gains tax in Washington. But um, generally speaking, uh, you can exempt $15,000, and that's in sort of like firmly constitutional territory. But if you exempt more than that, it starts to be considered a progressive tax. Mm. And so this might... sounds like one of the, one of the challenges of doing a ballot initiative is that you have to really like write the legislation into the ballot initiative because you can't just rely on a legislator to bang out all these details once you elect them. So that's a that's a somewhat of a is, is that a challenge that other states are finding as well that they have to really know that state's legislation and the tax code and 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 do all that on their own without like a legislator to do it for them? You know, it's it's another one of those things that varies even here in Washington. The first initiative that we ran back in 2018 was much more of a citizen's initiative with citizen's language. Um, and, uh, you know, between campaigns, one of the things we've been able to do is actually introduce this as legislation into our legislature 
which has not only allowed us to add things like financing and transition, uh, but it's allowed us to get it vetted by certain state departments and and really make it more robust as ready to pass legislation. Wow. Um, that is not necessarily as required as you'd think. So we're, what we're running is called an initiative to the legislature. Um, and I would say that basically the less prescriptive you are in the initiative, the more leeway you give to the legislators. And that's one of the reasons in which uh, we actually wanted to make this very uh, robust and prescriptive legislation uh, there is still a lot of room, actually, during the implementation process. We we do delegate a lot of this. Basically, we create like a state department that oversees a lot of this. It will run several committees to make sure it's seeking input from things like uh, providers and citizens and different constituencies. And, and a lot of the details will be worked out. The taxes are mandatory. Um, uh, but, you know... In Washington, I think we we really put an effort down to creating like a uh, you know gold star single payer legislation. I know that California was um, similar, although they didn't have the financing until the last minute um, as sort of like a companion bill. In other states, they've cho- chosen to go in the other direction, right? So in Maine, they were running it more as like a we are compelling the legislature to create a universal healthcare system. And it has to cover everybody, and it can't bankrupt us. But you know, other than that, it's up to you. Um, in the case of Vermont, that's the only state where this has ever passed. And it, there are people who will tell you that we tried this in Vermont and it failed, and that's why it will never work. Uh, that's not my takeaway from that story. Uh, but in Vermont, it did pass without financing through the legislature. Yeah, I was going to say I don't, I don't know that story. Yeah, so it passed um, in maybe 2014 or so. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a federal legislator, but he was supportive of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The governor was uh, kind of creating this as a key campaign issue. Um, and then and he won, and the legislation passed, and everyone was excited that it was going to happen. But once, once uh, you know, in office, it was, okay, so let's figure out how we're going to pay for this. And then they say, well, we'll tax this. And those people say... Well, we don't like that. Oh, we'll tax that. We don't like that. And then next election is kind of looming on the horizon. Everyone's feeling a little nervous and it becomes easier to just let it not happen. And so it was passed but never implemented. Um, So there's sort of this tension where the taxes are always the least popular part, right? And so some people say, look, just leave the taxes out. Pass it without the taxes and figure them out later. Uh, I would say that that creates a liability at time of implementation, right? So we don't know ultimately how this is going to succeed, right? If it will be in the more, uh, you know, values-based way and the details kind of get worked out later, or if it's going to be like, we really put forward the exact details and we're not negotiating and that's what becomes law of the land. Uh, We have basically always taken the stance at whole Washington that um, the more detailed and specific we can be, the more we can vet it, the more we can, the more meat we can put on the bones, the better, because um, ultimately that is what needs to happen, right? It is like all of these details need to be figured out. And uh, some of them can maybe be kicked down the road, right? You can say it's cart before horse because we don't even know if this thing is going to pass yet. Uh, But in our opinion, um, the more 
complete the bill is, the faster this is all going to happen and start getting people health care. So a complete victory for whole Washington, would that look like having the ballot initiative show up on the on the ballot for everyone in the state to vote on, and then presumably they achieve it, and you can go forward like independently as Washington's Medicare for all everywhere, like just in the bounds of your state? Does that am I am I doing that chain right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, what I would say is, um, you know, Washington would have, uh, let's say we we get on the ballot and we pass, right? Uh, there is a, a couple years of transition that are specified in our plan of how that works. Um, there are a couple of waivers that we would apply to receive from the federal government that help us uh, sort of unify federal programs and federal money with what we're creating at the state level. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to Medicare for All everywhere, the idea is that um, if we have achieved single payer in Washington, right, well, we would still have a bunch of federal legislators that we would want to lobby to support Medicare for All um, and do our part to make it happen federally. But the other thing is, um, you know, helping expand this movement to other states. So some states are kind of just getting out there, maybe for the first time, trying to create something at state level. Other states have maybe tried a couple of times. Um, so we always want to share our knowledge from what we've learned, whether it be policy or organizing strategy. But then the other thing that I think is uh, going to be worth discussing a lot more in the next couple of years is actually creating sort of regional healthcare plans that go across state lines. So I mentioned, for instance, Measure 111, which just passed in Oregon, which is not a healthcare plan. It's a constitutional right to healthcare. You know, oh. it, and it, um, you know, hopefully results in a, an implemented single payer healthcare system in Oregon. Um, but Oregon is right there next to Washington and California. And you can imagine if we were to link state plans together across those state lines, you would achieve even greater um, sort of unification, greater economy of scale, greater savings. Um, and, you know, if we were to create a West Coast healthcare plan like that, that would be the sort of program that could have um, enough economic power behind it that it could be expanded to the rest of the country, or it could be enveloped into Medicare. There'd be different options, right? But the point right. is that the further we spread this, um, the less there is to go. Yeah, because that's what I was trying to get to. Selfishly, I'm in California, and I want, I want this for me. So I'm like, it starts in Washington, but then once you achieve a healthcare utopia, will you deploy like? divisions of doctors to other to other states to help to just give them extra health care but yeah put it into oregon and then california make a pacific states alliance i'm down with that i i would be way down with that and i'll just say you know that is the work of medicare for all everywhere um we've only been around for about a year and in that year we've actually organized trips to both maine and washington uh where we sent volunteers who wanted to work on these healthcare campaigns and they helped gather signatures they helped uh, with these events. So, um, you know, just because we live in a state, right, doesn't mean that our impact has to be limited to that state. And, um, you know, there are campaigns all over the country that we can work on uh, and work together on. And so whether it's over social media or hopping in a plane to go and work on the ground, um, there are always ways in which we can treat this as a national sort of movement of movements um, and, and make it a reality. 
Yeah, I pulled up after you said whole Washington. I, I pulled up wholewashington.org slash get dash petitions. And I was expecting to see some like locations sparsely in the state, but there are so many places just stacked. Like it is full of places. How awesome is that? So you need to, to get on the ballot, you need to get a bunch of signatures. Like how many signatures do you need? Yeah, we set the goal initially of 400,000, and uh, then the Secretary of State later put out a recommendation of 405,000. Um, really, what we need is 8% of the votes that were cast for governor in the last election, um, which comes out to about 325,000. Uh, but then they add a buffer to account for invalid signatures. So that's where the additional, you know, 80,000 or so yeah. signatures. If somebody from. just like writes an X and burns a cigarette butt into the into the signature, then that doesn't count. No, yeah, there's lots it of needs reasons. needs a good, solid signature. Do you guys bring quills? I feel like if you had a nice quill and inkwell, <laughs> then the signatures would be these sort of fantastic, you know, calligra- calligraphic. You think it's the tool? If you, if you give someone a fancier pen, they're going to write more beautifully just... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you see those French aristocrats with the big, you know, big feathered quills, and they they write pretty nice. I was just going to throw that out there. They had years of schooling where, like, that was the only subject that they had. To I think you're just anti quill, Scott. I'm anti quill. What is what is with your anti quill agenda? Am I anti quill or am I pro bird? You know, I don't know actually if you have to hurt a bird to get a quill. My quill knowledge is very low. No birds were harmed in the harvesting of these quills. Is that even possible? I don't know. I guess if the bird dies of old age, it drops. Then you feathers. can ethically. What, what are we or you talking? Can, yeah, Why are pick we... up the feathers that. <laughs> this is the what the episode is about, Scott. It's about getting signatures for whole Washington. Those signatures are. He just said a whole bunch of them are going to be invalid if we don't get proper quill and inkwell technology into the hands of these volunteers. You're just making me angry now. You're just being obtuse. Now, Andre, it, Washington's already got my jealousy because is this it, my understanding is you get automatically registered to vote in your state as soon as you turn 18? Is that is that right? Uh no, I don't believe that's the case. Um Oh, well never we, mind then. I'll edit that right out. <laughs> Fake news, boom. <laughs> we, we do okay on uh on certain sort of pro-democracy things. The big one being we have been a 100% um mail-in ballot state for years. So you that's just get a yeah, you get a nice oh, voter pamphlet and ballot in the mail and then you can just put it right back into your mailbox with no postage or if you procrastinate oh. until the very last minute like I have in the last couple of years, you can take it to a Dropbox and be sure that'll get counted. But then when COVID hits, that sets you up very nicely for uh, not as difficult of a transition to vote by mail because you're like, that's already yeah. our setup. Nice, nice. What, I, have, I have one question, which is I like to dive into like what the kind of cascading or like follow-on effects of doing a really innovative new solution. And in this case, it's like, Let's do this state-by-state state solution. I guess we've kind of gotten into a little bit that it allows you to basically do this sort of state-by-state state momentum building, like building a movement by momentum. Okay, so here's my question. There's, but there was also popularly on the campaign trail for president in 2020 discussions about um, like Medicare for those who want it. So like a single payer, or not instead of a single payer, do a public option but really, the public option is such a better option for most people that it would very quickly 
very, very quickly, a large percent of the population would adopt the, it would the, be universal the, the, public, anyway. the public option, and yeah. it would become essentially universal. Is there any state that's doing a ballot initiative that does that? Not that I'm aware of. You know, what I'll say is when it comes to expansions of public health care, I tend to be supportive. You know, um, it always depends on the details. I, I will say, you know, one of the benefits of a universal system, right, is by putting everyone onto it, everyone's benefiting, which makes it more politically durable. It also can remove a lot of that means testing. So we pay money when we create these systems like Medicare and Medicaid. Um, part of what we're paying is just somebody to say, hey, you're not eligible for that. Get out of here, right? Um, and so uh, when you have a universal system, it's just kind of no questions asked. Get in there, go see the doctor, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, and, and then there's a really classic pattern in the United States where we dump expenses into the public sphere and then all of the profits get put into the private sphere, yeah. right? So when you think about something like Medicaid, right, it's sort of like poor people can be some of the most expensive people to provide health care for. Um, so they get put onto a separate system where there are often budget cuts, where it's been highly privatized. Um, and, you know, uh, Medicare and Medicaid were intended to be those stepping stones towards universal health care. And we've been waiting a very long time. So I guess what I would say is that um, most healthcare activists that I know, that I've worked with, that I've talked to, don't see a reason to put forward a public option. They basically say, we know what we want. It's single payer. It's public health care. Um, and, and my opinion on it is basically that it's, you know, um, if watering it down helps it pass and then that helps people get health care, I'm fine with that. That's just somebody else's job, right? So mm -hmm. Congress mm -hmm. can water down Medicare for all and pass a public option. Joe Biden can water down Medicare for all and pass a public option. The problem is they haven't done either of those things, right? Right. So yeah. I'm going to stay here and keep asking for Medicare for all. And if you find the time to pass a public option, great, uh, great, more power to you. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. I love that attitude. All right, should we wrap it up, Scott? Yeah, this was a fantastic solution that Andre Andre brought for us. State by state strategy of achieving Medicare for all. Yeah, I'm always going to be in favor of universal healthcare. So this is very exciting to me. I'm I'm on board. And I just love the parallels with the successes of the marijuana and gay gay uh, marriage movements. I just love that. I, I almost I just in my brain I just see like a bunch of dominoes mm -hmm. and then like you see the dominoes starting to fall and then all the other dominoes fall. I just love that. And I, when I first learned about this, I just thought, man, that is so cool. Yep. It's a lot of things like women's right to vote, women's right to choose, uh, both things that happened in Washington before they had happened federally. Um, and, you know, another thing that I like to throw out is just, uh, you know, when, when it comes to these legislative sessions, it can feel like we have like one chance to pass Medicare for all every year. But when you expand your, your horizon to 50 states, it's like we got 50 chances to, to get a few wins under our belt. And our states are the size of European nations. Right. Right? I don't know what the population of Washington is. I'm sure it's at least as big as like Luxembourg. You know, so in a way, if we get it, it's it's literally like almost a whole nation getting it because the state of Washington is, is a, yeah, it's a, it's a real large, it's a real population of people. So Andre, people can find you online at wholewashington.org. 
what how would they contact you with socials what what would be the way through social media yeah you know on most social media my username or display name or whatever is going to be captain stack so on twitter you can find me captain stack nice. that's where i'm most active we'll throw that in the show notes too all these links yeah and then um always feel free to email me uh, just andre at wholewashington.org um and uh yeah um if you want to get involved in any way um, I always say that we need a universal movement to pass universal health care. So uh, I really right. don't believe um, it matters uh, where you are, how old you are, what your job is, if you're rich, if you're poor. Uh, this movement needs you. We uh, will find a way to get you plugged into it. Oh, great. Yeah. Just dig in and get involved. I love it. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andre, for coming. Yes. Thank you, Andre. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be here next time. See you next week. Bye. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Bye.